as I mentioned, the, the theme of the gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. And so throughout the gospel, Jesus is announcing, hey, I'm the king. The, the new kingdom has arrived, and the reason the new kingdom has arrived is because the real king has arrived. And so the real king has come into this earth, and he's saying he's bringing in or ushering in this new kingdom, which is why in Matthew, the, uh, the birth account of, of Matthew is the three wise men. Luke, it's the shepherds. Matthew, it's the wise men. Why? Because what do the wise men come and ask? Where is the one who is king of the Jews? So they're looking for the king. The whole trajectory of Matthew is about the king and the kingdom. And so coupled with this idea that Jesus is the true king, he couples with it, hey, there's a kingdom. And then the question is, is if I'm moving from the kingdom of this world and coming into the kingdom of Christ, how do I live in this new kingdom? I mean, I'm used to living in this way. But now I've met the true king, and he's saying, Paul, come into my kingdom. And so I'm coming into this new house or this new country, but I need instructions. How do I live in this new country? How am I supposed to get along with you? How, what, am I, what are supposed to be my habits? How am I supposed to get along with other people? And so Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he has these big blocks of teaching that largely talk about how to live in this new kingdom. One of the blocks that we examined just in our last series in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's called the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, Jesus has set, has says at the very beginning of the Sermon on the, on the Mount, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around, enter into my kingdom. And then when you enter in, he says, okay, now this is, supposed, this is how you're supposed to live. Another big block is Matthew chapter 18 through 20. And Jesus' instructions are so unusual that a lot of scholars will call it living in the upside-down kingdom. So pretty much what the, the, the king is saying, you know all the values you have over here? Let's just invert them over here. It's pretty much upside-down. So over here you wanted to be first, and over here you're looking to be last. Does that make sense? And so he's coming in, and so he's going to tell us about the upside-downness Downness isn't a real word. I already know that. But the upside downness of the kingdom in chapter 18. And so when we just open the chapter, chapter 18, verse 1, at the time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So sadly, the disciples are, are reheating a leftover argument. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Sadly, they're coming and they're, they're trying to import their old ways into the new kingdom. <clears throat> and Jesus isn't going to allow that. Of course, that happens frequently even today. And Jesus has previously talked about this topic of greatness, but the disciples are slow learners. And so he decides, hey, I just had told them before. Now, obviously, I need some kind of object lesson. Maybe they're more visual learners than auditory learners. And so he finds this little child and asks the child to come to him. And then in verse 3, he says, unless you become like a child, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. There's a, a radical upside downness. 
Nobody wants to become like a little child. Nobody wants to be treated like a little child. Nobody wants to thought of as like, I don't know that much like a little child. But that's what Jesus is saying. That's the attitude he's looking for. And so in the new kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, we're supposed to be radically committed to humility, not to greatness. And then as you walk through this passage in chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, we're supposed to be radically committed to holiness. So if your hand sins or your eye sins, what does he say? Cut it off. Tear it out. Whoa. We're supposed to have a radical commitment. It's not like, well, you know, that's kind of bad, but it's no big deal. No. No, you're supposed to cut things off and tear them out. Now, not obviously literally, but you're supposed to have this radical commitment to your character. Verses 10 through 14, we have to be radically committed to each other. This parable about the sheep that goes astray. And he's saying, even if one of your congregation, one of your flock, a little one, in other words, even if it's somebody who doesn't seem to be very valuable or important, the smallest one, when they leave, when they get lost, the congregation should hit the Amber Alert button. And say, hey, everybody's got to spread out and try to find this one person and, and bring them back. You've got to be radically committed to community in a different way than you might say in the world. And then verses 15 through 35, which is our text for this week and next, we have to be radically committed to unity. This new family called the church, how are we going to stay together? And he gives us instructions on two things on how to stay together. is how to handle conflict and how to forgive. So this week, how to handle conflict, very practical. Next week, very practical. How do you forgive? You're in a new family. How do you handle, how do you handle conflict in this new family? It's going to be different than the way you do it over here. It's a new way. How do you learn how to forgive? And so that's what we're going to talk about this week and next week. And first, let's just talk about conflict conflict now one of the 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 buzz words in churches and you you would hear it in any level but you hear it a lot of times around the college or just out of college uh age group which i'm i've just aged out of here recently uh they use this word community i'm looking for community which is a it's a good word and in order to have community you have to learn how to have conflict and forgiveness in other words you're not going to find community because everybody thinks exactly like you that's not going to you're not that's not possible so if you really want a real community in order to stay in this real community we all have to learn how to handle ourselves when it comes to conflict so i want to give us several steps here that i think are in the text first verse 15 the first step if your brother sins against you first step you will have conflict inside this new community now that may be news to some of you all you may be saying hey i thought when i came to the right church i wouldn't have conflict eh, wrong you will have conflicts like jesus standing at the front door saying welcome you should come in there's going to be conflict here in the in the greek the word if actually is Better said, so or when. So when your brother 
sins against you. If you join Christ Community Church, if you join any other church, you will have conflict. It just might be helpful to let that reality sink in. You might have conflict with each other. You might have conflict with your pastor. He's not perfect. It's so important to understand that because you can become fatally discouraged. I thought I was going to come in and no, I wasn't going to have any conflict. And the first sign of conflict, I'm out, right? And you can be fatally discouraged by that. And I don't want you to be that way. And it really shouldn't be a shock, should it be? The church is called a family. How many of us have conflict-free families? I'd love to see those hands. Any hand, I mean, any hands? No, no. Every hand, every hand is down because you know inside of your family you, you even have conflict. I'm not looking at anybody particular. But in this size of a crowd, somebody had a pretty big conflict in their car driving here today. <laughs> so you're like, the Lord's speaking to me right now. But I mean, I, it's happened to me. It, it happens to all of us. And you might be just sit, sitting there. You're, you're in a conversation about conflict. And you might not hear anything I say. That's, that's not unusual. That's not unusual. The question is, because that's going to happen, how do you handle that? I was talking with a, a man who asked if I could share a story. And we were talking last week, and I said, uh, I'm, I'm just so glad you're at Christ Community Church. And he said he was glad to be here. I said, honestly, I didn't think you would make it. And he said, why? I said, well, you've had a lot of challenging conversations, a lot of places where there could have been conflict. There was conflict. And here's what he said. I was used to running. And I believe it caused me to miss out on getting real help. And I'm so thankful I stayed at Christ Community. I can't tell you how healthy that's been for me. See, I, I was used to coming into a church and I would encounter conflict because I'm bringing my sinful self in. And as soon as it got to some kind of level, I said, I'm out. I'm out right before I was going to get real help. And go to another church and do the same thing over and over and over again. So Jesus is trying to help us have a realistic view of this church community. And what it's going to look like, he's adjusting our expectations. He's trying to say first, let's just not be surprised if you're going to get into a family that you're going to have conflict. So number two. Now, look, maybe I should just say this if you're a visitor here today. We don't have a lot of conflict. Like we're not like, whoa, dysfunctional church. You know, um, I'm just saying you you will because you're bringing your sinful self in. And you're going to meet a lot of other sinners here. Uh, and so that happens. So one step is just to just to let's live in reality. So when a brother sins against you, Jesus already alerting that is going to happen. And two steps two is to step back. I just couldn't repeat that often enough. Step back, step back, step back. Because in conflict, so many of us step forward when we should first step back. When you get punched, your first reaction is to 
punch back. Somebody calls you something, you're, you're trying to get the zinger right back. In the two-year-old class, maybe even right now, some two-year-old is grabbing the toy out of the hand of another two-year-old, right? And what is that two-year-old's response? Oh, bless you. I'm so sorry I didn't give the toy to you myself. How selfish of me to have the toy all to myself and not think of your needs first. No, that's not what's happening. We all, we all understand, and understand that when somebody harms us, when somebody sins against you, we, we feel like getting them back. We feel like paying them back. We feel like punishing them back. And notice Jesus' goal goal is if he listens to you, if you go to your brother and he listens to you, then you have gained, verse 15, you've gained your brother back. It's a banking term, means value or wealth. So Jesus is trying to say everybody in the community has great value. You want to value these people. You're You're trying to gain them back, not get them back. You're trying to restore something, not get revenge. That's very important to, to just analyze my motives before I get into a conversation. This is part of the stepping back. Can I just analyze what's my real motive with my wife or my child or somebody in my community? Is my, as I'm saying, I got to step in and I got to get them back. Then step back until that goes away. I got to get revenge. Step back until you want restoration. Step back until you want to gain them back and not get them back. I think this is why Paul says in Ephesians, in your anger, do not sin. Because you, you can rightfully be angry, but you can wrongfully approach the person in some way of getting them back instead of gaining them back. But just stop for a moment here and think. When you've been hurt, what's what's your motive when you when you do step forward? Is it revenge? Is it ruin? Or is it restoration? Is it gaining somebody back? Now, if you're like me, you're like, this is so hard. I mean, I wish this was easy. And I would be a lot like Peter saying, okay, how many times do I have to do that? Which is exactly what Peter does. Jesus gets the end of the story, you notice in verse 21 and 22, and and Peter kind of, you don't know if he kind of butts in, but you know he's waiting. Don't you love Peter? Okay, how many times? And seven would have been a very big number. So kind of like humble brag. Peter's like, seven times? Seven, seven times I'm supposed to forgive? I love Peter. How many times do I forgive this person before I just give them the Heisman? <laughs> Jesus' answer, Peter, not seven, but 70 times seven. In other words, Peter, I need you to have an unlimited capacity for forgiveness. Now think about Jesus looking at Peter and saying this at this point. What's, what's ahead for Peter? The need for unlimited forgiveness. 
So he's trying to help Peter to say, you, you've got to have an unlimited capacity. Let's not think about a number. And I often wonder if Peter walked away from encounters like this and thought, it'd just be better if I kept my mouth shut. I mean, I'm always inserting my foot into my mouth. I'm making it harder on myself. Well, so step back. Let me give you a couple of more reasons for stepping back. One is found in the Sermon on the Mount is, remember that whole illustration about getting the log out of your own eye? So you do, you have a problem. Somebody sinned against you, but maybe you've made a, you've actually made a big contribution to it and you don't know it. So you step back to analyze how could I have create, been a part of creating this? I, I'm looking at the log in my own eye, but you may say, okay, Paul, that's fine, but there are times when there isn't a log in my eye. It's really on them. And I'll say yes, but when you step back, what you do is you recall how many times you actually have hurt someone else with your words or your actions. And you've needed forgiveness. And you've needed kindness to somebody else, from somebody else. So that you know when you come in, you, you have been on their side where you've done something wrong and you need forgiveness from somebody so you're you're sensitive to that you're not coming in for revenge or ruin you're trying to come in to restore to gain back not to get back proverbs which we'll study a lot about the tongue the tongue has the power of life and death reckless words pierce like a sword you see when you don't step back a lot of times you step forward like a sword Almost all of us have swords stuck in our chest from somebody who said something, and we've never, ever began. We can't forget it. But you've left swords in somebody's chest. So even when you've been hurt, you understand that hurt. You understand how hard that is. So you want to come back and try to restore it. You don't, you just, just drop the swords. Stepping back allows you to ask whether this sin against you is really something that should be overlooked. Proverbs 19.11, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. So, you know, sometimes you just got to overlook it, right? Now, overlook it isn't sweeping under the carpet and it's always at a low boil. Do you know the difference between those two things? Sometimes in dysfunctional families, just everything gets overlooked and nothing gets addressed. And so you're always, it's like an elephant underneath the carpet. You're always running into it, but nobody wants to talk about it. That's not what we're talking about. That's peace faking, not peacemaking. But there are some times that you just, in a, in a family, you just have to say, ah, I'm just going to overlook that. That's not worth, you know, trying to have some kind of conflict with. So a big question is, well, how do I know? How do I know when to overlook and how to, when to confront? What's that sort of a, it's not an easy line to draw. And so one way you would want to say is, do I just keep talking about it in my head? You know what I'm talking about? You just replay the conversation and you say, well, if he says this, and I'm going to say this. And then when and you, you give them all the arguments and you give them, you give yourself better arguments back. You've ever done this? Everybody's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, 
then, then you need to say something. If it keeps coming back, if it continues to damage your relationship, if, it, if instead when you walk down the hallway and I'm coming towards you and you have conflict with me, you duck into the office. Okay, time to have a confrontation. Any time it's continuing to be cold, any time you just can't let go of it. I have a friend named Steve who does conflict management for uh, his business, which I can't imagine. But he says, Paul, a lot of times I just tell people, do you think about it in the shower? Then you probably should say something. I mean, you know, you're just randomly doing something and I'm having a conversation in my head. It's probably time to say something. We have to go from overlook to the, the confrontation. Second thing. Well, let me just say this. When, you, when you're having this uh, confrontation, it's going to take a lot of wisdom. And so now we're going to look at these steps forward that uh, Jesus talks about. There's three steps forward here. First, uh, we need, when we need to confront somebody, when it's time to go, we just need to have some, something in our mind like this. John MacArthur says, if you're not willing to confront someone's sin, then you don't see them as having any value. Christ sees them as having value. He paid an infinite price for them. And he gives us the responsibility to do the same. So just when you're having to have this difficult conversation, you might just come in with this. This is going to be difficult for me. But you're so valuable, it's worth me engaging in this difficult conversation. Just a statement like that begins to help you get on the right side with the person you're having the conflict with and then here are the steps first you need to go one-on-one or you need to try to have this conflict privately now i'm not talking about something that if somebody's has sexual abuse or physical abuse or something like that that's not a person you're going to go back to we're just talking about sort of the garden variety conflict here and when you have an issue what does jesus say face to face not Facebook to Facebook. I mean, I hate to say I read this in the Greek. It did not say Facebook in there. But I cannot tell you the damage that it creates when somebody tries to have an argument by Facebook, a text, or an email. Those are great for information. They're terrible for conflict resolution. They create more problems. They bring in more problems. And so if you're on your keyboard or your phone, bounding away, I'm going to say this, and then just get it all out. Say it all out and then delete it. Just get it all out of your system. But please do not press send on that. Because people will save those words in print the rest of their lives. And you will not be able to take them back. So please do not try to solve it by a text. If you've got emotion into it, an emoji isn't going to be enough. (laughs) Just say, hey, I'm going to be here at 2 o'clock. Can't wait to see you. Hey, you've got this big problem, blah, blah. No, okay, no, that's not going to be good. It's, It's so simple, but because a lot of us don't like conflict, we'll just try any other path than face to face. And I'm just saying, always, it always ends in greater disaster doing it in a different way.
So first of all, we're going to have to have this face-to-face skill. That's going to take a lot of listening skill. I'm going to send you an email this week on how to be a better listener. But just a couple of skills. So somebody's coming in to talk to you, and they're confronting you about something. What's your first thing you want to do? Snap back, right? You want to defend yourself. So way to stop from doing that is when they're all done, you ask a follow-up question. See, because a lot of times you get into this, and I'm halfway through all what I say. Oh, whoa, 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 you didn't know. So you're cutting them off. Just wait until they get all the way in and say, can I, can I make sure I clearly understand what you say? Can you say this one more time or whatever? Now, look, that's extremely difficult to do, but that will save you a lot of problems. And secondly, if you know you've been wronged or you know you did something wrong, don't try to cut the person off by an insincere apology. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Let's move on. That's not going to be helpful. I've tried that many times. And that is not encouraging to your wife. What, what does that say? You're not valuable. Your opinion isn't welcome here. In this article that I'm going to send you, it says listening is one of the highest forms of affirmation. When we listen, we invite another person to exist. See, if you're a person that's always cutting into the, to the conversation or cutting people off or, or shutting things down, what you're saying to the other person is you're not valuable enough to exist. Now, you may not try, be trying to say that, but I can promise you that's what the person hears. When you greet me at the door, don't say, why did you talk all about me today? I mean, I'm just looking at all of us. We all have that same problem. I'm looking at myself mostly. If you can't get any resolve with just you and the other person, you take somebody else along. One of the principles taught here, according to one of the commentators, is Matthew's trying to keep the circle of people involved in the conflict as small as possible, as long as possible. That's why you're not going to gossip about it and spread it out. You're trying to keep it as small as can be just you and me, but if it can't be you and me, I'm just going to get a couple other people that I feel like are wise and can, can help us. And when you get somebody who's wise and they can help you, you, you do understand you run the risk of them examining you too. This is not your friend who's going to come beat up the other person with you. This is somebody who's going to stand like a triangle in the middle and say, hey, I hear what you're saying, but I, do you understand how you're saying it? So you open up a door. You open up a door for you to be corrected as well which I think is, can be helpful. And using third parties is, is enormously helpful. And I, I would want you to get to that more quickly for some of your bigger arguments. Say, we just, we need, some, we just need another voice in this, in this. Somebody we trust, a couple people. I get used by this all the time. Other elders, other people who are wise. Just can you hear this? Because we can't seem to get to some kind of Resolve. And I've been in all the seats. I've been in the seat that I've been hurt. I've been in the seat where I've hurt somebody. And I've been in the seat where I'm trying to navigate the hurt between two people. But it's very helpful to have that triangle in a healthy way. And the vast majorities of the family conflicts that we have here get solved in that way. Those, that's the main way 
you and I would exercise this ability to try to stay together. But there is a third step, and we don't have time to talk about it at length here. But if it rises to some kind of level that it's becoming destructive amongst the family, then you would bring it to the elders. I love how David Platt writes this. God loves us so much that if we are caught in sin, he will send an entire army of believers to, to, to us to demonstrate his love and mercy. So it's not just one person chasing after one person. Now a whole group of people are going to try to chase after and love this person back into the kingdom. We're all going to leave to go get the one person. And, of course, in an extreme case, if the person fails to respond to the leadership of the church, then the church has this authority. That's why you say these words about binding and loosening. They have the authority to take them and put them outside of the church, again, for the purposes of unity and also the purposes of hoping to gain that person back. It's interesting, you read this verse for where two or three are gathered in my name. Many of you have probably said this. Everybody's heard it. You just say it whenever two or three people get together. But that's not the context of this verse at all. The context of the verse is when elders get together, when the leadership gets together and make a decision, then Jesus is saying, if you all agree, then I'm there with you in that. It's not just, hey, two of us are gathered together. Jesus is here. That's a, a misuse of that. So don't, don't say that anymore. Um, <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer, nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than a severe rebuke that calls a brother back to the path from the path of sin. You see, oh, I don't want to say anything. That's a tenderness that's consigning someone to their sin. Don't do that. Proverbs 27, 6, we'll close here. The wounds from a friend can be trusted. So that's my hope. My hope is, hey, we're in a community. We're in a family. We're not going to be surprised. We can be discouraged. We can be hurt. We can be disappointed. We're just not going to be surprised. So how do, we, how do we do it? How do we know? Well, maybe it's something to overlook. Maybe if it's not to overlook, then we begin to, to take these steps. And my prayer is that as we do this in a healthy way, then people who come from the outside say, wow, they're really doing something here that's unusual. And that you wouldn't be the kind of person who my friend was for many times. As soon as any heat comes on, you just skip out. Because you might be missing healing that God actually wants to bring to you at that particular moment. Let's pray together. Lord, we are...